Welcome to the Circle of Birth podcast. I'm your host and advocate, Ali Kranz. These podcasts are here to gather stories, people and information to better our understanding of the wisdom of birth and how we can reclaim our connections to birth from conception and beyond. You will hear stories not only from Australia but from all over the world, bringing together women, partners, midwives, doulas and all the people that have a birth story to share. So jump right in for this next Circle of Birth story. Welcome to episode 11 and firstly I'll put a trigger warning on this episode and certainly here um, what we're doing with these podcasts is talking about the beautiful empowering journeys that um, people have. So before you listen to this show you will hear of a hospital experience with some heightened notes to it and then an honourable journey of birth and death. So if you're not in a position to hear this now and especially probably if you're about to give birth, just leave this episode for now but make sure you come back to it at another time. This journey is a beautiful one and definitely needs to be shared as you will hear of a life that what we feel may be very short-lived was filled with love, support and choice. This is especially helpful for anyone facing trisomy or any chromosome issue in pregnancy. So this episode today connects with Kylie and Kylie's a mother of three. She's an advocate for good food and has a wonderful business called The Little Raw Foodie and she's even made someone cry with her raw vegan slice. (laughs) Kylie shares today with us her story of her three births. First is a hard labour in a hospital where she found her journey in her journey that support and continuity of care are the utmost importance when birthing. And I can see firsthand here with this story why our doulas are super beneficial in birth. Her second story is a journey of her, with their son Daniel, who was diagnosed with trisomy 13 and lived a beautiful life of 38 hours with her, their family. This was a home birth. Kylie went on to have another home birth and found empowerment in this birth from Daniel's gifts of life. Definitely this woman tells an honourable journey and this podcast will go for one hour and 20 minutes and it is worth every minute to listen to this story of love, life and death. So hi Kylie, Um, welcome to the Circle of Birth podcast. Really appreciate you coming on to share your three birth stories. Um, Welcome to the show. Thanks Ali. (laughs) Okay, so do you want to kick it off and just tell us a little bit about yourself and your family? And then we can talk about your first birth with Gabe. Sure. So I'm currently living in Canberra, moved here from Darwin five years ago. Very difficult transition, but finally I think I can say we've settled in and we're happy here. Um, My eldest son Gabe was born, well, sorry, conceived back in Darwin, born in Adelaide. I was in the Air Force back then. Uh, I've got two other children, Daniel um who died when he was a baby and saffron who's now six so family of five my husband and i and our three and i was 32 i think when i had gabe okay great so 32 first baby 41 last baby great and do you want to get into gabe's uh birth and pregnancy and how that went for you Yeah, sure. It's actually, it's funny. I was just listening on the radio. I was just hearing on the radio this week about people who aren't feeling very maternal and all of a sudden they get that 
that urge very, very suddenly and and uh, um, often later these days than what it, you know, probably happened in our parents' day. And that was definitely me. I think I was um, I was very full on with my career. I was an Air Force officer. I was doing lots of overseas trips, really uh, enjoying my work, enjoying my time with my husband. We lived in Darwin. We had a lovely lifestyle, um, heavily into sport. Didn't we didn't really have time for kids, I don't think, and it, and it wasn't really even on my radar. I, I guess I always knew it would happen sometime in the future, but literally overnight, probably when I turned 31, I think, I suddenly got this massive urge that I just suddenly really desperately wanted a baby, and it was so strong, I just, I really felt like I wouldn't even be able to wait if we didn't conceive straight away. I just, I'd I, really had this urge that I needed to have a baby. So we, and I'm not a very patient person, so fortunately the very first time we tried, we fell pregnant, which was awesome, (laughs) awesome news. And and I think um, like lots of young people, because I considered myself still very young, you know, in my early 30s to be having a baby. And I think like lots of us in our late 20s, early 30s or, you know, early 20s, we kind of feel a little bit bulletproof and that conception will happen very easily and come naturally. And and I was definitely blissfully unaware at that stage of, of the many heartaches that can come with trying to conceive. So I went into that pregnancy extremely fit. Um, I think we, yeah, I'd just done an Ironman triathlon. So it was just... Uh, you know, bulletproof, felt oh. felt great, fairly severe sickness, but other than that, just a breeze of a pregnancy. However, the, the problem, I think, the main problem that I can recall is that we were moving, we were in a transition period, we actually got posted out of Darwin during my pregnancy to Adelaide, so what that meant is I didn't have one carer. So I think I saw about five different obstetricians throughout the period of my pregnancy, and at the time, home birth had not even occurred to me and nor had any sort of other continuity of care model because I was in the services, so we had private health care. And it was just as a matter of course, you were you were just sent off to this private obstetrician. So that was almost like there was never any choice there. And I, I, I guess I didn't even know enough to ask for a choice at the time. Um, and I just assumed that uh, because, you know, the RAF was paying for everything and, of course, it was private that that would be the best care I could possibly get. So I actually felt really, really comfortable doing that and I felt like I was quite privileged just having all that, you know, not paying a cent and getting all that just handed to me. And it's interesting that, that the one person who kind of tried to advise me different was my mum who... Um, had had three babies of her own and two fairly traumatic experiences back in the day when, you know, your baby's born almost necessarily via um, legs up in stirrups and forceps extraction, uh, which was the the case with my sister and my eldest sister, my next sister down and I, but then she was lucky enough to find a very progressive doctor, even though we lived in rural Australia and was able to have a beautiful, very natural birth with, um, our next sister and so I think that totally that really influenced her view of birth and b- because she knew what was possible and how differently she felt about that birth once we got to Adelaide it was get what you get 
because it was a busy time of year, lots of people having babies, and I had absolutely no rapport with with this man. And in fact, I didn't I didn't feel comfortable in any sense with him. I didn't feel comfortable with him touching my body. I didn't feel not in a sleazy way. I just didn't like him in my space. Um, whenever I asked him questions about my birth, he he shut me down. He kept using the line, oh, we'll just be sensible on the day. We'll f-. It, the, the language was just all wrong. And I, I, re- I realised that in hindsight and I felt very uncomfortable about it at the time. But I just think I was embarrassingly too scared to speak up against it. I think I just... I was also going with the motions and aware that my choices were really limited at that late stage. Like, okay, if I ditch this guy, I couldn't get into any of the obstetricians that friends had recommended. So he was it but interestingly and probably luckily he went on leave the week um that I went into labor and I actually got this really lovely obstetrician who I liked much better Uh, it it was cool and he um and as I'll tell you in a minute the birth certainly went down very differently to what I imagined it would but he was um certainly his bedside manner was great he was nice to me he treated he treated me with respect um, and my family with respect. So, so that was a plus. Great. And so did you, uh, during your pregnancy journey, um, encounter any childbirth classes? Um, or yeah, yeah, we did. When we got to, so when we got to Adelaide, we got, it, it was part of the, um, the local private hospital program that you got to go to. There was a series, I think we went to four. So every Monday night for four weeks, about um oh it must have been really close to my birth time at that stage actually we probably came to it a bit late because of when we arrived and then um yeah I think we finished the the last one and I probably went into labor the next week or something but um they were yeah so they were at the local hospital run by one of the hospital midwives she was absolutely lovely but there was lots of talk about pain management is uh, that's the thing that stands out the most I think um there was, there was some good nuts and bolts stuff, like, okay, this is what you bring to hospital, this is how it might happen. I think I think it was, I think the advice around the various ways you, your labour might start or um, that was all good, that was all practical, but there was, um, you know, there was lots of, certainly her, the, the kind of the, the attitude she projected was look, you know, it's whatever year it was then, it's 2001, you don't have to suffer pain, you know, we can do something about this, we can manage this for you. Um, and and I, and I don't remember what the time frame was, but there was definitely a time frame mentioned, like, if you've been labouring for this long, this is when we look at doing this. So, you know, already planting that seed, you've got this long, you've got this long. Um which I found at the... T- and I, I know that definitely got stuck in my head, like, oh, my gosh, I've got this long to have that baby. So, yeah, that was just, just an interesting thing to look back on and compare it with my subsequent births when I definitely didn't have that pressure put on me. The clock, the good old clock. The clock, yeah, the clock, yeah. Yeah. And so labour started and how did that... Yeah. Um, oh, look, the last... My last week of pregnancy was was quite lovely although I do I remember a few high emotions in there and I, I, I reckon now that that was just nerves and hormones a bit but probably more just subconscious nervousness that wasn't coming up on the surface um, my mum came to stay 
We did lots of walking. We did... Um, there'd been some confusion around my so-called due date, um, a, a bit of dispute between two obstetricians. One wanted to go on the on my cycle, the other wanted to go on the ultrasound. So fortunately ended up going with the ultrasound date because otherwise I think they would have been kind of talking induction much earlier because it was a full, you know, seven to ten days earlier the other date. So, um, you know, a week out there was lots of false false alarm phone calls to my husband at work. And But I think the day before I actually had Gabe, I woke up in the morning and I could tell they were something a little bit different was happening. So we went up to Harndorf in the Adelaide Hills for the day and walked and walked and walked. And by, I think, about 9 o'clock that night, I the, the contractions were getting quite... I recognised that they were actually contractions. Um, called up the hospital and they said, yeah, well, you know, it's probably going to take a long time, but come in and we'll check you out if you feel that. So off we went to the hospital, Paul, Mum and I, and... Um, and basically, from there, everything, everything just, um, yeah, I got on the treadmill and didn't get off for the rest of that night. I, I, we arrived. Uh, I, I mean, I was in pain, but now, you know, looking back to three, two more births later, I can see that that pain was really minor and it was certainly manageable. The problem was nobody was saying that to me. Nobody was saying to me, "This is." This is the early stages and it's going to increase in, you know, there's going to be a tiered increase in this is going to be a build-up. Nobody told me any of this, I think, and I was in an unfamiliar space. Um, and the first thing that, that I felt uncomfortable about is they, well, number one, they gave me um, and they gave me an internal straight away pretty much as soon as I got there and that hurt, so that was awful. Um then they said, well, there's no room here for them, so your mum and your husband are going to have to go home. So I think by then we're looking at, I don't know, midnight maybe. And I straight away, I just wanted to cry. I just, and I, and I thought, this is not right. This is not right. Why are you sending them away when I need them here, you know, um, you know, especially Paul? And they said, no, well, I said, can they just rest in the chair? And, I, like, looking back at myself, I just I just see, like, this pleading little girl, you know. I imagine myself being in school asking, you know, and I've done something naughty and I'm asking the teacher not to get mad at me. And that's, that's how I feel when I try and look back at myself on that night is I feel like all of the things I'd learnt to that date were just taken away from me and I just turned into this vulnerable little person that couldn't defend myself. Um, it makes me really sad when I think about it, actually, and because I'll always remember Mum turning around and looking at me and I know that she wanted to stay and, and I know she knew that it was wrong that they were sending them away. But anyway, they went. They went. The the midwife offered me a sleeping tablet and I said, no, I don't want a sleeping tablet. I don't take any medications. And she said, well, I really think you should have one to settle you down. And I said, well, I really don't want one. Um, in the end, I think she said, well, I'm just going to leave that here with this cup of water. So it was almost like, oh, look, I was <laughs> still trying to, I think you should take it. And then, then the contractions started coming. And then when mum and Paul were gone, I started to cry because I thought I, I don't know, I don't know, I can't, I don't think I can do this. I feel like I was by myself, I felt scared, I didn't know what was going to happen. Um, all of the ideas about birth plans and everything kind of just went out the window. Um, but then the, 
the one the midwife that was there when we went in she was quite nice because she came and said she came back she had a bit of a chat to me and she said I think you should try and get some sleep and she asked me a few questions about myself and then she said you know what I think you're going to do really well she said you're really fit she said you've got a good attitude you you know um you're healthy you're young she said I think you'll do great and that was nice to hear and that kind of bolstered me a little bit but then of course the dreaded shift change and another midwife came in and so I got up I started walking the contractions started coming closer together and I think after about an hour they said yep okay cool call your husband and your mum back um bit blurry on what happened straight after that they arrived back and then I know the pain was getting worse and so I was just walking around and then I I know the next thing I know I had a new midwife and she uh, she wanted to do she did another um, VE and then I she had me on my back pushing so she she said I was fully dilated ready to go and I better start pushing which was I had no urge to push mum and Paul were standing there looking at my vagina and could see no evidence of any <laughs> anything coming or happening or and I think mum was quite alarmed at this stage because having had three babies she knew that this I just wasn't there yet um and uh, to cut a long story short this went on for quite some time this fruitless pushing until we changed shifts and the next midwife came and did another exam and told me I'm definitely only four centimetres dilated and that it was an error. Having had two babies with no vaginal exam whatsoever throughout two entire labours and births, I cannot conceive um, and I'd love to see my records because I, I don't know how many I had but I had several more after that. So. Um, because my waters hadn't broken, they wanted to then break my waters. So then we had multiple attempts to to snag my, my um, to say, snag the sack and break my waters. Um, none of those were successful. And I think it had been a few hours. So then we went gas, um, which made me sick, pethidine, which made me vomit, and eventually epidural because I just I think I was so over it do you want an epidural yep I said anything give me anything I just I just want to have this baby so all in all it was 20 it was 20 hours probably from the time I went into the hospital um and then he popped out and it Gabe popped out and it did well not popped out got pulled out and he did it did make everything better you know he came straight onto my chest he he didn't breastfeed but he certainly squirmed around and it was beautiful and and I did get that rush of just overwhelming love and I, I just didn't want him to be apart from me at all and and I remember saying to Paul you know hold his little hand and go everywhere with him and and he did that and that was that was good but I just felt like someone had hit me with a baseball bat or something I just and then I'm next thing I know I was kind of yanked off the table and into the shower in a wheelchair and the midwife was washing me and oh my god it was so invasive the whole thing was so just you know and I'm a wide space person anyway you know there's very few people I let into my space and to have strangers in it doing all sorts of things you probably wouldn't even let your own mum do was really weird Paul drove mum home um so he could come back and but but while but Gabe was just really settled he just slept so that was really nice um they didn't encourage co-sleeping so 
it, we had him in a little hospital bassinet next to the bed and I remember and he was swaddled and I remember just looking at him you know and thinking oh and the 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 photos of me afterwards I'm just so puffed up and swollen and um somebody's told me recently that that that's to do with something I was given and I can't can't remember what it was um but just it's really it's it's really weird like I'm I don't even look like myself but I remember looking just looking at him and just thinking yep that you know that was I'm so glad I've got him but I also remember thinking I'm never going to do that again I will never do that again I was I was 100% certain that I would never have another baby. Um, and he just slept through the night, and that was beautiful. And the next few days weren't bad, actually. Paul was allowed to stay at the hospital, and it was kind of nice. It was kind of cute. But I, I really just wanted to get out of there and go home, and sort of mum was there, and she could have, and and I now realise, shown me a lot better than what I was being shown in hospital um, because they just had so many policies and conventions and you've got to do it this way and we don't do it this way and you must do it that way. And, um, you know, a lot of it was very different to the way I did things with my next, with, with Danielle and Safi, but um, at least we were together and, and um, most, the midwives were, the, the postnatal midwives were quite nice, if a little bit detached, you know, kind of. It, it wasn't the same as having someone you've known. but. Um, and so your postnatal period was fine in the next few months? How did you go? Yeah, 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 it was. Um, oh, look, I was just, I was overjoyed to have this little baby. We adored him and, and, um, and he was beautiful. Uh, I did get definitely a big dose of the baby blues day three. Um, I remember, I think I must have been going home that day, actually. And, or maybe it was day four, but I got home and I remember, I can't remember, was it hospital or at home? And I said to mum, I can't stop crying. And she said, that's all right. That's, you know, that'll happen. And, um, and I just cried and cried for a day. And then I kind of snapped out of it. And, um, and then there was, you know, the usual unsettled a little bit. He had his day and night mixed up, but breastfeeding went really well, which was, uh, in fact, I don't even remember my breast being sore with him. I think he just latched on and off he went and he sorted himself out. So that that was good. Um, and then I kind of just got on with it. And it wasn't until it wasn't until much later, much, much later, like years later, that I started to go back and assess what had happened. The only thing that I do remember is that when I was talking to other women and particularly other women in my mum's group and who just had babies, you just notice all these stories coming out, you know, this is what happened in my labour, this is what happened in my labour. And there was just this obvious need for us all to get it out of our systems. Um, and, and, and I started to be really careful about who I shared my story with because I just remember so many people telling me horror stories before I had Gabe. And I just wonder how much of that, without me even knowing it, went into my head instead of the good positive stories that only a few people had told me. So I was very, very close with my nana. And she was hugely involved in my cousin, all the, the births and the initial, you know, in the lives of my cousins and I from babyhood onwards, my nana was really involved. And, you know, mum said to me once, she said, don't forget, she said, I've 
learnt everything I know from about the best mother that ever lived. She said the most loving and she said, you know, you adored her. She said, so if you won't take the advice from me, just remember where I got it from. And that's so special to me now to think that that wisdom's passed down, you know, and and even now I look at my sister and she's a much, um, much better practical mum than me in terms of, you know, silly stuff, knowing how to put cardies on a baby or a kid or whatever. And she's had twins. Um, when my sister had her twins, her other daughter was only two. So she had full on few years of babydom, you know, and I watch her sometimes the way she goes about things. And it's just so Nana. Mm-hmm. And, um, and you know, my, all my sisters and I, and my brother and I are very different, but I look at my sister Cindy and I think, her practical mothering skills um, in in terms of getting stuff done quick and, oh, they're just brilliant. And they all come from Nana through mum and that's lovely, you know. Yeah, that's I, so I, lovely. The, it the is, wise really mama. Cool. So, okay, now do you want to talk about your next birth with Daniel? And, yeah. Um, tell us about this beautiful journey. Yeah. So Daniel, um, so da- uh, Gabe was already five when I conceived. Five already five when I conceived Daniel we just got back from a a big overseas awesome overseas trip for seven weeks and we thought geez we've put it off long enough I just I was having such a lovely time with Gabe I was lucky enough to be able to stay at home with him um we lived in Darwin we had a pool in the backyard we just lived this beautiful tropical natural outdoor lifestyle um it was really you know I always say to Gabe we had the life of Riley there was just no pressure it was just a really lovely slow childhood for him he could do everything at his own pace he wasn't rushed to do anything and um yeah just he was a great healthy adorable little boy and I just love my time with him and People often say, oh, were you worried that Gabe wasn't ready to share you with another baby? But it wasn't that at all. It was that I wasn't ready to share him. I wasn't ready to share my time with him. And it, and that's why it took us – I don't – I think part of it was the trauma of the birth, but that was a very small part of it. It was more just that I was enjoying what I had. But anyway, I knew I wanted to have another one. So we got back from this trip and – and um, pretty much same again. We, you know, we had a couple of goes and straight away fell pregnant. Um, yeah, delighted again. Gabe was beside himself with the idea of having a brother. Because I think inside he had always kind of wondered if he'd get one, you know. He, he he could see other kids who were only two years apart from little brother or sister and maybe was thinking, oh, maybe it'll just be me. So, and everything, yeah, extremely, extremely sick again. Um but other than that, everything just progressed well. I grew well. My tummy, you know, my tummy got bigger. Uh, didn't have any early testing. I, I, I didn't with Gabe either. And, and with Daniel, same thing. I We, we decided not to have any, um, any of the early screening or testing. And then at 20 weeks, Paul, Paul was away in Perth. Uh, and I went, you, you know, fronted up for my 18-week... So, sorry, not 20 weeks. It would have been 18 weeks. 18-week morph scan, and I think I just just made it in the time frame that they want you. And, um, the you know, the, the worst thing that I could have imagined happened. They found some things that, well, in their words, didn't look quite right. And, um, yeah, it turned out that, that our baby, who would then, who would, you know, we would later find out was our son and who we called Daniel, had had a serious congenital condition 
so just to pause for a minute on the way I found out that news, we so I'd gone along for my, my morph scan on my own because Paul was away. Um, and so the ultrasonographer just, he took a really long time, like a, a really long time and, and I knew, I think I kind of felt like something was wrong because he wasn't talking at all. He was just looking again and again and prodding the same places again and again. Um, and eventually he said, look, I, there's some things that don't look right. I'm going to go and get my colleague who he brought in. Um, th I think he, yeah, he introduced him. They And then they just spoke to each other. They did not speak to me. They just spoke to each other about what was happening with my baby and in in you know in um, language I couldn't necessarily understand. And then he said, "Okay, this is this looks like one of the trisomies." I think he thought it was trisomy eighteen at the time. Um, and he said, "We'll need to go and get the consulting obstetrician," which they did. She came in and then she started to talk to me. But actually, he'd already said to me, "This, you know." this is really serious because I remember saying, oh, oh, is it Down syndrome? Because that was the only trisomy I know of, I knew of. And he said, no, this is more serious. M you know, most people whose babies have this condition terminate. And like, whack, bang, you know, it just, you can't even, I, c I couldn't even believe what was happening. I, st I still look back on it and think how I, I don't know how I got out, drove out of that hospital really, but so then, but I'm a pretty calm person. So then I think the next thing's like switch my little optimism button on, and I'm thinking, okay, they're they're wrong, they're wrong, they're wrong. It's you know, please let it be okay, let it be okay. The obstetrician came in and explained to me this is what we found, and it all still seemed pretty, you know, it seemed like stuff to me. I've kind of felt a little bit like, eh, well, couldn't you see that on any scan? But I, I didn't understand really um, the gravity of what having that many markers. So they're called markers when they find one one thing that looks a bit abnormal. They they call it a marker. Now that marker might be that your baby's um, skull is looking a little bit big. It might be that there's an important part of something that's supposed to show up on scan not showing up um it might be that their kidneys look too small or that their face doesn't look properly developed for that stage so there's all these things they put together now if they've got one or two markers it usually means nothing they have a second look it usually means nothing but i think daniel had five so it's enough for them to say we need to look at this further so um, so yeah, that was it. from those markers, is this where they gauge then? Do you maybe want to tell the listeners just briefly what trisomy means? So it, it means, okay, so the, the, you, there's chromosomes, all the chromosomes, um, you're supposed to have two, one from each parent, um, and they're numbered up. So babies with Down syndrome have trisomy 21, which means they've got an additional number 21 chromosome now all those chromosomes control something different so with trisomy 21 with down syndrome the things in your body that controls it's um not necessarily it's not not depending on how severely that chromosome is going to mass that additional chromosome is going to manifest itself it's you know, you can have, and they call it high and low functioning, which I don't, I don't like that term. But you could have a, a, a baby that is very minimally affected. You know, it's barely even 
you wouldn't even know that that baby has that additional chromosome. But then you have, you know, um, a baby who's very severely affected, who has a heart condition because of it, or has um, severe intellectual challenges. So, in the case of trisomy 13, it's an extra 13th chromosome, and unfortunately, 18 um, is very similar and. It's to do so. How bad, badly that's going to affect your baby, and how life-threatening it's going to be, is to do with how that chromosome relates to what it controls in your body. So, um, in the case of Daniel, um, you know, 13 is a pretty important one that that can affect everything from brain function to respiration to um, temperature control. So, pretty important stuff. So the markers just show this is... So what they, they've done over the years is they've built a picture. These are the things we see in babies who have this extra chromosome. So 13 and 18 are quite similar um, in terms of what they can see on ultrasound. If they were looking at a baby with Down syndrome, they'd be seeing a different set of markers that are typical of that pattern. Okay, great. Thanks for that. So what I'll do is I'll um, make sure that I link in the resources to to all your links um, from your website um, yeah. in relation to that too. So if people need some more information, they know where to head to. Yeah. So so I th so the big thing about getting the information when I got it um, was there's no specialists. Well, there are in the world. There are, but certainly. In Australia, the people you need to speak to about this are genetic specialists, so um, geneticists and genetics counsellors. Those those are the people. And if there was one message I had for anyone getting this information, it would be do not make any decisions until you've spoken with a genetics counsellor. Um, they're trained in this in these conditions. They're trained to, to talk to parents who receive this information. Um, sadly, so many obstetricians are not, and... and what happened in our case was I had two very nice obstetricians. They were quite compassionate and um, sensitive about what we were going through, but they knew very little about trisomy 13. And the more my pregnancy went on, the more that became evident. And what also became evident was neither did the paediatricians, neither did, neither did the heart specialists or the other, you know, myriad of specialists I ended up going to see through my requests mostly. And down the track, having spoken to many, many women who've been through the same thing, I realised that so many times people are given bad advice when they're just at that point of, okay, here are your markers. Um, and and quite often it's the misinformation that then leads you on to make the decisions that you make. And, I mean, it's such an important decision because basically what the, the choice you're about to be given is, do you want to continue this pregnancy or do you want to terminate it? And that's, that's what you had to just, you know, on, upon reading your book last night, um, yeah. this was the choice that you had to face, you and Paul, was that? Yeah, so they, they had already put, they'd already sort of said that to us, look, a lot of parents terminate, um, but we need to, but, you know, and thank goodness that they were, they were competent, they were all competent at their jobs, so um, they had said to us, well, no, you, you know, we, this is what we found, we are fairly sure this is a trisomy, but there's no way we can know unless you have amniocentesis. So amniocentesis is, you know, I mean, a, a lot of the listeners probably know, it's an invasive procedure where they're actually going to take serum from inside um, 
you know, inside your the sack that you're carrying your baby in. And it holds a fairly high risk of, um, you know, I shouldn't say that. The, it, depending on what you read, the risk of miscarriage really varies. And depending on who you talk to, sometimes it's really played down. They might say it's one in 100, but I've read, it's, I've read it um, as being as high as one in 600 as well. So there's really um, conflicting data on just how high that risk is. And it, it, for me, it was a really scary next step to take. But I also, I, I never thought I'd have an amniocentesis in a million years. But I also thought that if we don't know even what's wrong with this baby, how can we possibly care care for him properly? And how can we put in place the things for his birth if we decide to go ahead and continue with the pregnancy? So, yeah, we went ahead and had the, had the amniocentesis and thankfully um, all went well and... Um, and it was confirmed, yeah, I think within a week it was confirmed that Daniel was full trisomy 13. And um, and at that stage, that's all they can tell you. They can't tell you how severe it'll be. They can't tell you how that's going to manifest itself. So the term they then use is not compatible with life. Okay. And uh, during that point, did you hire a midwife? Was that during this journey? Ah, yeah, yeah. A midwife along no, with you? I, yeah, I already had one. So... Yeah. We did, sorry, I skipped that bit. Um, early on in the pregnancy, and, and this it was just a complete fluke, I um, I decided I was going to, I didn't want to have another private hospital birth. I wanted, if I could, to have midwife care rather than uh, obstetric care as far as possible, and I wanted to do it as part of a community-based program. So what was available in Darwin was the community midwifery practice and a girlfriend had recommended it and she'd had a really positive experience. And sadly, um, she, she'd actually lost her little girl as well. It, but she, her, her experience with this program was so positive, she'd recommended them to me and she said, look, they're great. Not, not having any idea, of course, that I was carrying a baby who was... Um, who had had a congenital issue so that's that's where I was going but I was at the hospital you have to do an initial antenatal check just to get the tick yes you can go through this practice because of course they're after women that are low risk um and it, and it was just I just stumbled literally looked down on a desk and saw a leaflet for the home birth service and I said can you still have a home birth in Darwin and the the, the midwife on duty kind of said oh oh yeah you can and I said, oh, great. So I went home, rang the, the service, and my midwife, Marg, came out to our house, met Paul and I, and pretty much the minute she left, we just looked at each other and said, we want her. We just felt that comfortable. She'd answered all our questions, and and she she just made us feel so at ease um, and completely been able to reassure us that, you know, that we're not just going to sit out here in your house and hibernate and you have this baby you know the ambulance is going to be aware you're in labor the hospital the hospital from our house you know it was 15 minutes drive it was you know I was completely convinced that all going well and my pregnancy proceeding well it would be a good safe choice in the context of my life and and my family so yeah so we'd already decided to go with ahead with the home birth Marg was away when I got the news and um, she came back a couple of days later and came straight to see me and uh, I think she was just so helpful. 
I mean, I hardly knew the woman at the time and she just, what she did was let me talk out my fears and let me really say how I was feeling and be honest with her and you know, in return, she was honest with me and said, well, this is what I've seen in terms of babies with trisomy. Um, this is what will happen if you have a termination at this stage. And that was really good because certainly nobody in the hospital had completely talked me through that yet. Um, and then it was, I think it was, it just came down to at the time what I really, what my gut feeling was and what I was more scared of really when, when we were deciding. Must have been... Uh, to, to, to feel that, you know, going through the emotions for you and your husband and then to have that person there um, as that support um, must have been just really great to engage on that level too, I suppose. Oh, that constant. Look, she was great. And, and, you know, like 24-hour, here's my phone number if you need me. Um, and, and I think the other thing she the other thing she said was look regardless of what you decide to do I'll support you so that was really important like um and and I I, I don't know to this day because we never needed to discuss it what uh what the sort of policies are in terms of say a home birth service midwife going along to support you during a termination I'm thinking that what would have had to have happened was she, I would have asked for her to be there as my support person, but not in her capacity, definitely not in her capacity as a midwife. Um, but, but certainly up to the point where I actually walked in to, I think the other thing that people, some people may not be aware is that if you have a termination at 23 weeks, 24 weeks, which is what we would have been looking at, um, you need actually, to, you, you need to have labour induced and and, and you, you have your baby and then your baby dies. So um, that that was a horrible, brutal thing to have to face that if I, if I go in there and, and I say this complete without judgment, this is not, because I stood there and I made this decision and I could definitely have gone the other way and I'd be telling a very different story now. But um, I needed to know what is going to happen to me when I walk into that room and what's going to happen to my baby if we decide that we're not going to continue this pregnancy. And and I think it's so important that any woman who makes that decision knows knows what she's in for. Sometimes the lack of support for women who um, make that decision is, I, I find that heartbreaking because, you know, we went on and I'm jumping ahead, but we went on and we did continue our pregnancy and we were surrounded by support. Um, the idea that somebody would go through that and just not, you know, not have the support that they're entitled to, I just, I find it really devastating. So... During this time, uh, how did it go? I know in reading your book, you and Paul talked a lot and made a lot of decisions, you know, regarding the birth and the process from there. How, how, tell us about that journey. Um, so, 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 we, so we decided to, we decided to keep Daniel. It was, I think it just, I, 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 Oh, I um I found an online peer support site that was that was really important too. I I just spent nights trawling the internet trying to find this information no one else was giving me, um, and I, f I came across some sites in the US of other parents who were carrying babies with trisomy, um, 
and sort of reached out to them and said, well, this is where I'm at. What, you know, what information do you have? And just so much support came back. It was, it was really lovely. And I think once I saw, um, I saw what could happen if you had good support, I realised that I, I just had to go with how I felt and my overwhelming feeling was to keep my baby. Um, and I know, I haven't had people say it to me, but I've certainly heard it in broader conversations that that's a selfish decision. Um, people people say that quite openly. They say it quite openly about people with, who have babies with Down syndrome, you know, oh, aren't they being selfish? They're only thinking of themselves. It's, it's such a big judgment call to make a statement like that because I don't think, I think anybody who's faced with a decision like that they can only do it in the context of their life and how they feel. And you do what's best, what you feel is best for you and your family and your baby. And that's what we did. Yeah, so we exactly right. It's just all mothers, especially with the the changes and processes in their body, will do anything to do the best for their baby. Yeah, I that's right. We believe that. Yeah, me too. And sometimes that's going to be, you know, why I, I honestly, and and particularly if. So some babies with trisomy, their markers, when their markers, their ultrasound will reveal a lot more significant abnormalities than what Daniel had. So there'll be very significant um, brain issues or there'll be very significant physical malformations. And, I, and when that happens, it's a lot easier to predict what the quality of life of that baby would be if they survived. Uh, so I can, I can definitely understand parents looking at these pictures and doing the maths and going, you know what, I, I just I, I just think for my baby that this is this is not going to be okay to bring this baby into the world. So I definitely understand that. And I just, I don't agree with anyone who takes this moral high ground that, you know, that one decision is better than another. It's not. It's what's right for the mum and her family. And so your, your pregnancy went well in regards to that. He was kicking around and moving mm. happily and uh, oh, beautiful. all went well leading up to the birth? Yep, no, um, couldn't, you, you would, you just, you couldn't know, couldn't know except that I was a little bit smaller, carrying a bit smaller than I did with Gabe, definitely. Yeah. Um, so all the way along we knew that he was small. Um, no, he was, he wiggled and so it was a beautiful pregnancy. Gabe was fully involved and that's, I mean, that's the other big thing. We really made sure that Gabe was involved, but we were honest with Gabe. We told Gabe that, um, you know, this baby had a serious condition and that it wasn't fair, but it was just the way it was and we didn't know why and that, um, two things could happen. We could have a baby who had really significant challenges, um, intellectual and possibly physical or we could have a baby that died and that he could die any time during my pregnancy and he could die shortly after he was born so I mean I don't know what I expected Gabe to do with that info he was six at the time but he he took it on board and he said oh well mum whatever you know he's still my brother I still love him and we'll just we do what we do so that's what we did we we sang to him every night and we talked about him and Gabe felt my tummy a lot and he talked to his friends about my pregnancy and yeah just really involved and very excited to meet his brother I think beautiful and his favorite song was Danny Boy is that right to sing um no he's he's that was one of them yeah we 
um, Danny Boy, we used to sing him, and he made up this other song, Elton John's song, Daniel. Um, <laughs> we made up our own words to that, and he, he um, yeah, we used to like to sing that one at night. And, yeah, he just, it was real. I have no sadness when I think of that because I think it was, uh, it's gone a long way to making Gabe the young man is today. So I think that Daniel gave us many gifts and one of them was um, giving his brother a great tolerance and acceptance that a lot of kids his age probably don't have. So, um, yeah, really grateful he got to spend that time while I was pregnant. And, yeah, it was beautiful. And then, yeah, the birth, three weeks early. So uh, I have to... You know, shout out to my midwives here, both of them. Marg, the most amazing. She's a, a beautiful woman, a beautiful friend, and easily one of the most competent and compassionate midwives I've ever met. Um, and there's, you know, there's a lot of them in Australia. We're lucky. It's just that they've often their hands are tied and they can't practice, you know, within their full scope of practice. But um, her support throughout that pregnancy was unbelievable and the most important thing she did you know from day one she said what what do you want to do and I said I want to prepare for a birth and she said not a death and I said no I want to prepare for a birth and she said well that's what we'll do then she said and not only Marg but every midwife in the Darwin home birth service at some time whether it was bumping into me at a morning tea or you know international midwives day would came and gave me their support and said you know, so excited to to um, be part of your beautiful pregnancy. And, oh, they were just wonderful. They were just lovely. And um, Marg's backup, my secondary midwife, Mo, um, and a completely different type of practice to Marg, but another beautiful, amazing woman, wealth of experience, and just um, just a lovely person to, to have on your side. So you and Paul were just surrounded by, or and Gabe were just surrounded by love, by the sound. Yeah, of it and definitely, exactly and we were, and and um, I think we told only, we told my family obviously and Paul's family, um, and they were all great. But we told probably my five closest friends in Darwin, five or six closest friends, and just this little circle of people who knew. Nobody else knew. Everyone else just knew I was having a baby. So through that, I got all the lovely positive comments and just that support, 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 no negativity or none of those awful sad looks. Um, and my my friends, um, oh, till the day I die, I'll be grateful. They, they were the best friends. They were just, wow, just amazing, so supportive. Mm. Everything they did was right. It was great. Great. And so prepping, so the labour started, you, did you have a birth pool, water birth plan? Yeah, yeah. So I had, um, so it was at home, we had it all, yeah, we were having a water birth. We, I did quite a bit of research in the last few weeks, I kind of hit panic station. I went to see a paediatrician who I knew, she's a lovely woman and um, a very good paediatrician. And I did that at my request because I hadn't been referred on to her. Um, and I kind of went and I just pulled up these reams of evidence I'd found on babies who'd survived with trisomy because the Australian line at the time was still not compatible with life. They'll all die within, you know, this period of time. And here I was with evidence that there were kids living with trisomy 13 and, in fact, living to adulthood with full trisomy 13. So um, I took this to her and I said, look, what do you reckon? Am I... 
am I all I want to do is I want to have this little baby I want him to be comfortable and we just want him to have a good life however short that is we don't want him to suffer we want him to know that his family's there am I doing the wrong thing having him at home because is am I increasing the risk because he needs help or so she did a lot of looking and she sent me off to a cardiologist then who checked his heart and we it, it was really down to the wire because it was only it ended up only being a couple of days before Daniel was born that I got an email from her saying oh look Kylie I've been thinking about it and I've talked to this other specialist and really we think what you're planning is the way to go you know you're, you're going to look after this baby the hospital's just down the road you can call us anytime um so basically she was just reassuring me, look, you're not putting this baby at greater risk of suffering by staying at home. Um, there was nothing that they could offer me that Marg couldn't do. So we kind of, you don't know how your baby's going to be affected, but you know that things things that are common are going to be apnea, for example, which is, you know, issues with breathing, um, seizures. So there's things that as soon as you saw the sign, if there was that it was causing the pain, of course you could get them to the hospital or Marg could bring oxygen or we had we had things in place. So we had you know, we had a plan in place for every contingency basically. But what ended up happening was I I woke up in, I'd sent Gabe in to sleep with Paul because I was uncomfortable and I grew up jumped in his bed and woke up one morning and thought, oh I recognise that feeling. And um yeah, and I'd started labour and um, the contractions came all day. Just a beautiful day. I'll, I'll always remember it. It was the dry season and all the louvers were open and, the, you know, the warm breeze was just blowing through and um, and I just, you know, walked around the house, laboured on the beds. Marg kept ringing me. Oh, yeah, no, it's all sounding good. Give me a call if it, if it picks up and um, sent Paul off to get me some pads and things I'd need afterwards think the guy came to give us a quote for the bathroom and <laughs> Paul said, Paul yelled out the window, sorry, mate, she's in labour. And he goes, oh, all right. He goes, is there anything I can do? Oh, <laughs> how sweet. How sweet, yeah. Um, yeah, if you want to come here and do these contractions for me, you're yeah. welcome. But other than that, um, and it all happened really like slowly because it was beautiful but then really fast because this is where I just um, – was gobsmackingly amazed at myself that I could physically give birth to a child without any intervention. It just, it all played out. Marg came, um, we filled the pool, Gabe got in with me with his little goggles, um, very helpful, pretending he was, you know, he was a dolphin, he was this, he was that, he was diving down, he was coming up making comments about whether I was dilated and <laughs> uh, and then eventually I, it started getting a bit more serious and I started like my, um, so I felt everything change and Marg recognised through how I sounded that things had changed. So she kind of said, come on, Gabe, over here and I'll make you some Vegemite toast. And off they went and did that. And um, honestly, next thing I know, I was groaning and pushing and I had a baby. It was... Wow. It really was that um, amazing and that special. And so none of that, there was... Daniel's condition didn't come into any of that. The only thing that we did differently to what we'd planned is we'd planned not to have him in the water because we just weren't sure if everything would work the way it's supposed to in a baby with his condition in terms of um, we just weren't sure how his respiration would be affected and so we thought better safe than sorry 
I'll stand up and get out of the pool to actually have him. But it ended up happening so quick. He just slipped out. We popped him on my chest and there he was. He didn't, um, he didn't breathe straight away or cry straight away. So uh, I think Marg actually gave him a little bit of oxygen and then uh, the best sound in the world, he, he opened his mouth and he cried and, yeah, massive relief. Because I remember looking at him in my arms and he was quite limp and I remember thinking, you know what, if you've got to go now, I'm... I'm a, I can. That's okay. You've. I've got you here safely. You're okay. You, you've not known any pain. You're. And I, and I think I could have been okay with that. And I think everyone could have been. But thank, thank God, he cried. And um, yeah, then just amazing, amazing, amazing for 32 hours. He. Um, yeah, he was beautiful. He didn't look. He didn't have any of the outward manifestations of trisomy 13, so it was actually a bit hard to accept reality that that that's what was happening. It felt a bit more like they'd been wrong and I've got this perfect baby and, in fact, this is it now. We've got this baby forever. Um, so that was a bit mentally dangerous, that first few couple of hours, because I just kept looking at him and I'm like, there's nothing wrong with him, there's nothing wrong with him. But then we found bits and pieces, so... Um, so, th so we knew, yeah, this is, this is right. He, um, and he had a cleft palate, which hadn't been detected. So he did have trouble breastfeeding. So we fed him, I, I expressed and we fed him through a little pipette. Um, he cried, he expressed all his needs. He, if he need, you know, if he, he, he could wee and he could poo. So if he needed to go to the toilet or if he, he needed an appy change, he certainly let us know about it. And I think that's a hard thing. Having had a baby who's got trisomy, one of the big, the big arguments a lot of doctors use when they're they're arguing against, um, well, arguing for termination basically, um, is that these babies won't won't be aware, they won't be sentient, they won't be, they won't have any knowledge that they're there, that their intellectual capacity will be so small that they won't even. All they'll be able to experience is suffering. They won't be able to experience anything else. Well, that 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 is was definitely not the case with Daniel. So, uh, you know, he could have been any other baby in those first few hours, any other baby. So, yeah, that was um, that was beautiful. Thank Stayed you. up all. Thank sorry. You, thank you for just mentioning that part too, because it is so important. That's one of the things that anger me that parents get told things like that um. yeah and and look and I've seen I've seen photo video evidence and shared stories with hundreds of other parents who who would support what I'm saying um, so it's th this idea that you're just going to have this uh, sometimes the pictures painted just basically this little bob of pain is going to come into the world now I'm not saying that can't happen. I, I, there could be some conditions, and there could be different severities of conditions where a baby will. And in that case, definitely, you know, pain management. There's lots of steps you can take. Um, but but Daniel wasn't one of those cases, and he was quite clearly not suffering and not in pain. So. Um, so you guys spent about you said 38 hours to me, um, and especially from reading the book, um, it was just slow and intimate and just your family. yeah yeah. It, so we stayed up. Gabe went to bed. Gabe had lots of cuddles and sang songs and did cool stuff. And then he was exhausted. Big day for him. So we took him off to bed, and I kind of stayed there. Paul made me. Um, I think I had some Vegemite toast and a glass of red wine or something. Um, 
It's a nice combination. Well, I just, you know, I hadn't had a drink of wine for a really long time and I thought, man, I should be celebrating this. And, um, you know, as I'd already expressed some nice milk, I thought Daniel will be right. So, um, we, so we, I sat up with him and I, I don't know if I did it deliberately, but I just, I just was awake the whole time and he kind of dozed, um, yeah, he slept, he slept, he was all good, um, and woke up the next morning, did we wake up, how long was that? Oh yeah, and then we had a full day with him, yeah, yeah. so we, so Gabe got to, to be with him and spend time with him that day, um, and hold him and, you know, and even just be in the room with him, really. It, it was just lovely. And then one of my very close girlfriends, and she's the only one who did, I, I, she rang me and she said, she said, can I come? And I said, yeah, I said, you can come. And she came and she um, she nursed him and held him. And apart from my mum and our family and my midwife, she was the only other person that got to got to spend time with him and she still sends me every year on his birthday oh I can you know I can still remember rocking him I can still remember that special day and um so we had this beautiful day with him and then at about nine o'clock that night he started to um get apnea uh we could it was pretty immediately recognizable he he would it was like he was holding his breath um and he he would kind of go a bit blue in the face and then we'd just talk to him or I'd stroke him and it was like he'd come round. And this this happened for a while and I said to Paula, I don't know what's happening. I don't know if this is the start of something. I don't know. We, You know, we've got to call Marg. So we did call Marg. We'd kind of just rocked him and stroked him and we knew she was on her way and um, she brought oxygen. But by the time she came, he'd fallen asleep. So we knew that he'd kind of settled himself. And um, mum arrived because he was three weeks early. Mum had just come from my sister's birth of twins. Um, so pretty hectic time for her. And then, um, so she got off the plane. Paul went and grabbed her and one o'clock, I think she arrived. And she had, um, she, she held him and sang him some songs and, you know, got, got a lot of time with him. And then I sent Paul to bed. I said, you know, you know, you get some sleep. Mum's here with me. And we sat up and we had a talk. And then um, it was just, I think it was just before three o'clock. She was sitting, he was, mum gave him back to me and said he might be hungry maybe because he seemed to be waking up. And all of a sudden he, he opened his eyes and he looked at me and his face just, I can't really explain it, but I can see it in my head now. His skin, it was like he creased every muscle in his body. He just went really tense and his little face just screwed up and then he just went slack. And and I think mum knew, but I just, I think I knew too, but I just didn't want to accept it that he died. And um, it was, yeah, it was just really hard. It was, even though we'd known all that time that it was going to happen, it was, yeah, it was a very, very difficult thing and, but having said that, you know, I think I put in the book and it probably sounds a bit, you know, um, maybe corny, but I feel so lucky that he met, that I held him his whole life pretty much. You know, I didn't, he didn't, um, he didn't know anybody except his family and he never got exposed to anything bad. So as hard as it was, and it was bloody awful, um, telling Gabe was awful, we took him to bed. I took him to bed. We gave him a bath. I took him to bed that night and I slept with him. And 
And then I remember the hardest thing, the hardest moment um, was waking up in the morning because I kind of woke up and felt like it might have been a dream. And, and I know you read about that in books, but the minute I opened my eyes, I thought, maybe that wasn't real. And then I felt him next to me and I knew it was. And it's like just this awful, awful feeling of acceptance. Like um, I can't describe it. Probably anyone who's lost somebody close and particularly people who've lost a child will understand that just that awful moment where you know it's real and, um, yeah, indescribable, awful. Nothing good to say about it. It's just it is what it is. And so from there, that's when, yeah, that's when you have a really horrible time, you know. So from all that beauty and love and everything, then the next bit's always going to be really shit. <laughs> Yeah. Um, the processing and the processing the the dealing with the grief um so i you know we did we i think we did lots of beautiful things to honor him in those next days we had some really awful and some really good experiences in terms of the support and lack of we got you know while we were attempting to get him buried and all the rest of it um cremated um and but i then i don't think i I tried a couple of times, but I basically didn't come out of my house for six weeks after that. Um, I just couldn't face anything, really. Um, people came and saw me, which was lovely, really supportive and so grateful for people's understanding of that. Um, and, and and that's how I was able to get through it, I think, just being able to take that time and um, have the support of family and friends and and know that they were letting me have time to do it in my own time. Um, yeah, yeah. Especially, you know, one of the things that struck me the most, um, and I think I mentioned this before we started recording, was that someone mentioned that it, it was a short time for him, but mm -hmm. for him this was his lifetime. And yeah. I just feel that you guys honoured him from conception right to... Um, his passing and it was just as such an honourable decisions that you made in the journey and um, you know, like you said he 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 died in your arms um, yeah and, that, and that's it, it just just beautiful Kylie just beautiful it was and I think um one one thing one a girlfriend said to me who'd, who'd lost her baby as well um, which was such such a valuable piece of advice she said to me don't until until he's been cremated because we decided on cremation and that was a hard decision too but she said until he's buried or cremated or however you decide to lay him to rest he's your son he'll always be your son but you you that's your responsibility you know don't be convinced by anybody that you're not you're not to parent anymore once that baby's died you know um and and this friend of mine works in palliative care and she's an amazing compassionate woman and i love her to death but she spends her whole life working with families to help them accept passing and help accept death and accept the lead up to death and then accept that period afterwards where they even need more support you know during that grieving period and and she said to me you know she often sees people being told by others, you know, you need to forget about it now, that it's just a body now. It's just, um, you know, and as a mum, you don't feel that way. You feel like I think, I, you know, I think I put in the book somewhere that it's totally irrational, but you feel like I almost felt like 
if I could just put him in the fr- freezer, it's, this is going to sound really warped to some people, but you feel like if you could, if you could just somehow um, preserve his body and just get him out now and then, you feel like you would do that because that that physical link is so strong. Um, and of course, that wouldn't be the right thing to do. Of course, you would never you wouldn't go through the process of grieving and everything but you're not you don't you don't feel rational in your moments after you've lost a child or a baby mm-hmm. you feel like i want to do whatever i can to cling on to this you know and i don't want anyone listening to think i'm unhinged and lost the plot but it oh, those things definitely went through my head you know um you don't entertain them for long but you certainly think how how can i keep and you know gabe said to me he said mummy why can't we just keep his body and and i thought yeah why can't we (laughs) why can't we it would be so cool but you know of course you can't of course you can't he's not a living little thing anymore but I just really appreciated my girlfriend saying to me you know do do the job properly right till the end and that's where I think it's important that parents need to know their rights that when your baby is a waiting bear your baby or your child or your loved one parent whatever is a waiting burial you know Choose somewhere where their policies are support what you need to do. So um, if you want to go and visit your loved one again and see them in the flesh, then then make sure that, that, that you're supported in doing that because once they're buried or cremated, you're never going to get that chance again. Mm, and Yeah, very good point. Yeah. And there's all sorts of, like, I'd say the first, and I don't want to go into this because it's really long and lengthy, but the first funeral home we went to, for example, some of the advice the director there gave us was just plain incorrect. Like, she started talking about how quickly bodies deteriorate and things that would scare us into rushing in and using her service, basically. Um, and, you know, and I later got advice from people saying, well, you know, there's cultures that keep their bodies for days and preserve them and, and you know, um, care for them and bathe them. And so it, it's all about getting the correct advice and just doing what's important for you to do. Like, obviously, no, not keeping your baby in the freezer downstairs if you're in your house in Darwin, you know, probably not the best idea. But, um you know, my, another friend of mine who, who also lost a baby, they're doing some great work in South Australia raising money for um, what's called cold cots so that parents who lose a baby in hospital are actually able to keep their baby with them for a longer period of time, which is... In, in the hospital? It's in the hospital, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, so that their bodies, so that they're kept at a temperature so that, um, you know, everything will be okay and that the parents can spend more time, the families can spend more time. Yeah. And, you know, things like, initiatives like that, so compassionate and sensitive to the needs of parents yeah. who've lost a child. Especially too, I think what we need to um, acknowledge is that, and in your case and in a lot of parents' cases, that when you lose a child that's just born essentially your hormones are still going through their process what what i will say from this i think um you know i'm definitely going to link your book um and you have as a free pdf download um, yeah yeah that that will be able to help people especially with postpartum stuff you've had a great list of resources there and the the story you've written is just beautiful um it's straight from your heart and um it's very informative on the same side. So going through your journey after Daniel, um, and then you, how, how, uh, how long after his passing 
did you decide to um, have another baby? Oh, it was really weird. We, I think it's, you're so torn, you know, one part of you just want to have another baby straight away. And, and I do know, I know mums that have actually gone on to do that very quickly after they've lost a baby, they conceive very quickly and they have another baby and that, that has been great for them. Um, we at first thought that would be good for us. So I think Daniel died in July. Christmas time, we sort of, I was, you know, my body was all good and, and I felt, yeah, I, I feel like, you know, I feel like it would be nice if we conceived again. And I think we sort of, we ha we weren't using contraceptives, so we thought, oh, if it happens, it happens. But a part of me really hoped for it. But it, it became very quickly obvious to me every time I got my period, it would be just this great sense of loss. And, and I really quickly sussed out that I wasn't lost for this new baby that I was still processing my grief for Daniel. So that we said, no, nah, not ready. So we, we took a lot longer than I expected we would, actually. We, um, we just didn't, didn't give it any... We didn't put any effort into it. We just thought, well, we... I mean, not that I'd ever really gone... I, I'd never gone into my cycles or when I was ovulating or anything, but we just, you know, we're going to get pregnant. We got pregnant. Well... This time we weren't exactly trying not to, but we kind of both knew we weren't ready. So I guess I was sort of planning a little bit to not, you know, to, to be careful around the times when I was ovulating, that sort of thing. So um, I think it was a bit of the the age clock ticking and, I, I don't know, I was 39 or 40, I had my 40th and then we kind of said, okay, if we're going to do this, I think, I, don't want, I didn't want the rest of my life to be about are we going to have another baby. So we either need, we sort of felt we either need to accept that this is it, we have our family, we've had our two babies, Daniel's always part of it, or we need to say we really want to have this other baby. Um, and anyway, we said, I don't know, one month we said, all right, let's just give this a red hot go and if it happens, and sure enough, fell pregnant. So, and we were overjoyed. We were really, really happy. Gabe was really happy. And we fell pregnant exactly three years after we fell pregnant with Daniel. So wow. um, probably to the day, in fact. Yeah. And, um, yeah, and then that was, of course, everybody in the world who knew us was overjoyed. So <laughs> big outpouring of love and, um, you know, and I'm so glad and, yeah, it, you know, some really good things, some really weird things got said in that period. But um, just lots of love, which was great. And... And we were so happy and um, knew there was no alternative but to have Marg again as my midwife and home birth. And so fortunately I got the exact same team of carers, including my obstetrician. So I, I got to see the same um, obstetrician again. Um, so everybody, the whole, all, all the way along knew what was happening. So I didn't have to re-explain my story. I didn't have to... Um, you know, it, it was just a really good, positive experience, the whole pregnancy. Yeah. Um, and, and did you have to engage in similar testing or did well, that, that put out there to you or you just... So the option was there and we did have the morph scan and that was really difficult. Yeah, it, it all, he, you know, he, he said, yep, all looks good. So it, it you know, you, you're always aware that nothing's ever 100% guaranteed, but it 
definitely put my mind at rest, rest at rest. But I think I always knew everything was fine anyway. I think, um, I think we, you know, I had that feeling. I had that feeling. It's all going to be good this time. With the other two, I had just gone into contractions and my labour didn't break until well into the into the sorry my water didn't break until really well into the labor in fact just near birth i think with both of them and um with this one my water broke so with Safi, i was sitting on the lounge chair and yeah water broke and that was it we were off and running i didn't really start properly i didn't the contractions didn't come for two hours after my water broke so gave marg a call she she said she'll come, but she didn't come straight away because there was no urgency. Um, then she came and sort of, you know, talked to me and had a bit of a check and, yeah, all was good. So, um, was Gabe there this time? Gabe was there. Gabe was there and my mum was there this time too. Yeah. So mum, mum had made it in time, which was great. Was he like uh, the dolphin doula again? He wasn't. He didn't get in the pool with me this time <laughs> because I, I actually laboured. Most of my labour was in the bathroom groaning into the drain of my sink because I'm quite I'm quite loud in labor and I really feel um, it, it helps me with the pain so that's my pain management is groaning quite loudly and as um, I think Paul and Gabe described it as dying cow noises <laughs> so I was our neighbors like it, the houses weren't really close we had a nice big block but I know that at night noise carries and I was very conscious that these neighbours next door who definitely were not birthy people or <laughs> even have any kids of their own would be able to hear me. So I was groaning into the drain of the sink thinking I hope that muffles the sound a bit. Um, and and that's where I felt like because uh, Safi hadn't moved down yet so I could feel her starting to move down Um and I reckon I was in there for a couple of hours in the bathroom just groaning and, and getting in my headspace too because the broken waters thing took me a bit off, caught me off guard because I just thought I'd, having done it twice already, I just thought I knew what my labour would be like. So I kind of had to then go and say, okay, it's different. Get your head around it. It's, it's all going to be okay. You can still do it. And I had these two little voices really because once the contractions really picked up, like I was a little voice saying, I'm not doing this. I am not doing this. This is no way am I doing this. And the other one was saying, well, what are you going to do? Are you going to go to the hospital? And like, no. Well, then just get on with it. So that's what I did. I just, I knew I could do it. So I just did it. And I knew everything was okay because Marg would pop in and just whisper in my ear every now and then and, um, you know, check check the bait, check Safi's heartbeat. And, yep, yeah, all's good. How do you feel? And, that, and she'd whisper and off she'd toddle again and they'd all be hanging around in the lounge room and, Eventually, she she must have heard my voice change, and she came in. She said, "Oh, do you want to come out now? And we might get that pool ready." And yeah, that's what we did. And and the pain was quite intense then, so it was a long walk from the lounge chair to the pool. But yeah, once we got in there, um, I I just again kind of went in the zone, just in the zone then, and. Um, doing what I needed to do, rocking, just that water was beautiful. I really find water helpful. Um, and Safi, Safi was born, um, didn't tear, which was absolutely amazing. Um, and, and actually, that's an interesting point worth mentioning. I, I'd said to one of my girlfriends who'd had three babies, uh, I know I'm going to tear, and she roused on me, and she said, what are you saying that for? And I said, well, 
because I, I had massive, st- I had a massive episiotomy with Gabe. I tore with Daniel, and he was tiny. I said, she said, of course you don't have to tear, and she actually talked me through breathing my baby out. And Marg had said that to me with Daniel, breathe your baby out, and I had no idea what she meant. Um, but I kind of worked it out. But this time I was ready for it. So when I felt that really hard crowning. And I got that sudden urge to just do, you know, a big grunt and just expel this baby. I slowed it down. And, I'm, uh, look, I'm, I still think it's just magic that you can even do that. I can't even believe you can do that with your body. But I did. And, yeah, so I didn't tear, which was a big bonus for me, having um, just to realise I could do that and to realise that other women could be taught how to do that. Mm-hmm. It was I find that amazing, you know. And just coming too, like I'm just picturing you back in the hospital with Gabe and just that yeah. into where yeah. you are now. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. It's it's, it's amazing. Yeah, it, and it was, in, that's the word for it, Ali. It was truly empowering. And, um, and it was Daniel's birth that gave me that empowerment to know I could do it again. And as long as everything's okay, I can do this. And, um, and so... So I guess the other important thing to say is why did I know everything was okay? Because I trusted my carers. Because I had no doubt that the minute they heard or saw something amiss, they they would straight away get me to wherever I needed to be to birth safely, mm. to have my baby safely. So uh, I think that's the difference. People get this big alarm bells going about home birth and, oh, my God, but what you can't explain to someone who's never seen it happen is that these two midwives who had seen hundreds, supported hundreds of women in birth, know just by the sounds you're making what's going on in your body. You know, that's... um, It's pretty special, isn't it? It's special and it sounds bad from a medical perspective because, oh, you know, how could they? It sounds like, you know, um, witchery or something, but it's, it's... just that they're so competent, so specialised in what they do, I guess is the big point. They know that woman so well. They, um, that's, what it, that's what it all comes from, knowing the woman, knowing um, what sort of person she is, it, it, and it all comes together, and then they just they know how to best support you. But so it's, um, the, it's the ancient wisdom of listening, I think. Yeah, well, yeah, that's right. Yeah, it is. And be there with her and... Yeah, be present. Yeah. My second midwife, Mo, always makes, always emphasises and and makes a great point um, that if you feel safe in your environment, it doesn't, it should, it won't matter whether you're at home, in hospital, on the side of a river, in a car. I mean, none of those are the ideal places. You'd want to give your baby, you know, birth your baby, of course, but... If you have your support team around you, it's almost like you're in a little cocoon. So had I had to go to hospital and Marg and Mo came with me, which they would have done, I still would have taken that feeling of safety with me. Um, The difference is if you're forced into a position where you're birthing in an unfamiliar place with people you don't know and not in a way of your choosing, I think that's when it becomes potentially unsafe and, and and unsafe isn't just about unsafe isn't just about if you have physic something physically go wrong with you during birth or your baby unsafe is about your mental health as well and your feeling of um your feeling of emotional safety and I think that's 
that's what people often forget is you, d you don't just have to be able to get this live baby somehow extracted from you. That's, that's not the whole safety picture to me. Well said. Yay. Thank you for saying that. That's, uh, I wrote something. Um, there, there was a sort of a thing going around on Facebook and it was an orangutan that gave birth in um, the zoo and the birth was just beautiful. She was obviously left alone and she was in the dark and she built her nest and, um, you know, she licked off all the fluid off the baby after the birth and I, mm -hmm. it just struck me. I was like, well... If that was a human filmed doing that, she would be just ridiculed and yeah, you know, yeah. told yep. that she was stupid and all of this. But yet yep. it seems like the zoo's a place to birth because that that Natural. that orangutan mum was just praised and told how yep. wonderful she is. And it's like, yeah, well, yeah, where, yeah. where have we gone a bit yeah. with that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. And, I mean, I, I just... I mean, I suppose the last thing I'd say is that... we. It, it should be possible to achieve the sorts of births that I've had in a hospital. It should be. It should. So if a woman doesn't feel comfortable birthing at home, she should be able to get the support she wants. And if she feels safer in hospital, then that's the place for her. Um, there's nothing to be gained from forcing any woman to birth anywhere she doesn't feel comfortable. Yeah. So... If, if she wants any woman, you know, hospitals, the way that most women do it and, and, they need to be supported in their choices in that environment. So if they want to have their midwife with the... If they want a midwife, they should be able to have a midwife. If they want... You know, if they don't want any of that, if they just want their obstetrician to come and, you know, perform a Caesar, they should get that too. But it's it's about their choice. And, um, and I just... We get too caught up in the home versus hospital thing when it's really... It's about... This, it's, it's your continuity and your support for me, I think. Well said, definitely. Well, thank you so much. Um, I, I just feel absolutely honoured to um, share. I know we've gone, like, way over time, so I'll probably have to split these up, but that's completely fine. Um, I feel absolutely honoured that you shared those three beautiful birth stories. Because I met you at a baby expo in Canberra and the, one of the first things you told me after I ate your beautiful um, raw caramel slice, vegan caramel slice, was that a lady cried. Yes. <laughs> eating your slice. Bringing people to tears with my food. Yeah, yeah so it's, I'm, I'm not, um, and, and I, I always say to people I'm not hardcore, uh, you know, I mean, I'm not, I'm not 100% raw, but I just... I really, I've got, I've gone through this whole cycle, but I've, what I've basically come back to is, you know, using lovely, fresh, local, um, seasonal where possible, organic where possible produce to do yummy kids that, yummy stuff that's, you know, good for your family, basically. And, um, yeah, I, I, I quite enjoy it and I probably didn't mean it to end up the way it has, but, um, yeah, it's fun and, yeah, we'll see where it takes me. Yeah, great. And I'll definitely link um, to there and so people can sort of see your journey and how that progresses. Okay. Um, thank you, Kylie. No, thanks, Sally. Thanks for letting me rave on. Yeah, much appreciated. Thank you so okay. much. great. Did you connect with this episode? Then head over to our website, circleofbirth.com. There you'll find show notes, pictures, resources and potentially connect with today's storyteller. Don't forget to sign up to be updated with new empowering episodes and content. Help the show grow by contributing a tip in the jar to make sure we can continue to better the podcast and connect more and more to the wisdom and birth and each other. 
Hey, and don't forget the iTunes rating. This has been another episode of the Birth Share Project. We breathe, we birth, we empower. Thank you.